From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Create change like a girl. Member. It's all just prelude. Women, look what we did! Guts, heart, passion, drive. Hey, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. My guest today is the multi-talented Claire Evans. You might know her as the lead singer of the pop duo Yacht. She's also the author of the great new book, Broadband, the untold story of the women who made the internet. Claire and I talk about her path to researching and writing Broadband, her choice to parody Steve Jobs in her author photo, and why it's so important to tell nuanced stories about women in computing. My father worked for Intel, so I was in a very technologically savvy household. I mean, I'm, I don't have a technical background. I'm not a programmer. Um, I am a humanist. And, but that's what I always loved about computers is that, you know, my father, who studied computer science in Manchester in the 1970s, like old school, dyed in the wool computer science guy, uh, and I could relate um, about computers even though I was a writer, artist type, and he was a more technical engineering type, you know, that's the great thing about computers. They are receptive to many different forms of input. And if you just want to push symbols around and think thoughts and write, that's just as valid as as wanting to get into the guts of the machine. So we were able to relate uh, about our shared enjoyment of of this technology from a very young age. And I think that was a really formative part of my development is that I always had access. You know, I came of age online in, you know, the late 80s, early 1990s, and sort of what I would say maybe are the glory days of the internet. I mean, who knows? But, you know, I really found myself and discovered my identity as a person by exploring and reaching outwards into, into you know, networked space as a young person. And I cut my teeth as a writer during the golden years of blogging. So, you know, a lot of my sense of self comes from my relationship to the computer. And, you know, part of my motivation for writing this book was trying to make sense of uh, who I was as a computer user in the modern internet age that we live in now, where something, you know, has fundamentally changed about our relationship to the internet. Uh, I had always felt like the internet was my country, you know, that I was, uh, I was a native to it. But I don't know, in my adulthood, I think something happened to me or something happened to the internet, and I, I no longer felt that way. And so part of the motivation for writing broadband was really to go back and, and re-examine the lineage to understand, you know, where as a woman and a computer user I was uh, in relationship to a larger sort of historical body uh, and if if the lineage of computing could lead up to and include someone like me. When did you feel like either you changed or the internet changed? I don't know. The weird thing about the internet is that it's the way that it changes and evolves is so instantaneous and nebulous at the same time, you know, it rewrites itself so frequently. And there are things that we take for granted, uh, but then they change quite quickly and we forget about them instantly. I mean, I think of like these really anodyne examples, like remember on Twitter when you used to star things instead of heart hearting them. Yeah. I remember when they changed that and everybody was so, was so outraged. And then, t- then I bring it up to people now and it's like, no one even remembers that that was a thing because these things are constantly washing over us and changing so quickly. So it's really hard to know exactly when I started to feel like the internet was no longer my country. Um, I think maybe in the last, you know, five years, I think the rise of social media has really changed the, the sort of the tone and feeling of networked life. 
And but yeah, I mean, that's part of what's so fascinating about these histories is, you know, actually putting a finger on something concrete when you're surrounded by this ever shifting, you know, technological medium. You know, having done all these interviews, and we'll talk about some of them in a second, is there is there any that you sort of connected with on a personal level where you felt like, you know, this person was, you know, you shared a, a story or you shared a, a feeling or a history with this type of person, with this person? Well, I mean, I feel really grateful that I got to write this book because it means that I now have this Rolodex full of these amazing older women who were involved in computing at various levels in the history who are now just part of my life and, and give me a sense of context and a sense of community around these issues, which is just like so fun and I feel so blessed. Uh, but the, yeah, that's, I, I made a pointed effort to not focus exclusively on just technical people. I mean, there are programmers, coders, and, you know, routing protocol designers in this book, but there's also, you know, game designers, hackers, publishers, community builders, because, you know, one of my major and strongest feelings about the internet as a technology is that it's a social technology. It's a, it's a human technology. And the, the work that's done around the sort of the more user-facing aspects of it uh, that hasn't traditionally been privileged in tech histories is just as important. And I say this a lot, but, you know, making things worth linking is as important as developing the conventions for linking, because this is a technology that reaches into the very depths of our human experience and our collective, you know, community-oriented experience. Uh, so that being said, there are people in this book that are kind of closer to me, uh, yeah, I don't know, in terms of their work than others. I, I related really strongly to people like Stacey Horn, who was an early uh, community builder. She built one of the sort of earliest social networks called Echo in New York. And Jamie Levy, who was an interactive media designer in, in New York in the 1990s. I mean, these are people that are really interested in you know, the relationships between people developing healthy communities and making interesting, dynamic, fun, you know, culture for for the box. And those people are people that I relate to because I come from a background of, of art and music and writing. I, 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 I see them as kind of my heroes and peers. But I, I, get, I really get something out of every one of these relationships. And um, there's always, you know, so many interesting insights that I get when I talk to these women, even still now, because, you know, the great thing about writing a book about people that are still alive is that you get to bring them along with you. And I've been doing book events where I, you know, I actually bring some of these women out with me for conversations and to sort of introduce and contextualize their work to, you know, a larger audience. And it's so fun because I'm still learning from them and I'm still, you know, they, they're, they're still knocking me out on a daily basis. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, it's really interesting also is that there are so many stories and women that you tell the stories of here who are living, and then there's this whole historical part of it at the beginning, which is, you know, equally important. Um, let's talk about Ada Lovelace for a second, and I think that, like, probably half the people listening here today have, like, heard everything they've ever wanted to hear about Ada Lovelace, which is not to say it's not deserved of being told. Um, but I think there's a bunch of people who still don't really know that Ada Lovelace was, you know, like the world's first computer programmer. Yeah, I mean, you can't write a book about women in computing and not start with Ada Lovelace. You know, it was, 
It's like medically, legally required. And I think it's, you know, beyond just that, it's also her story is really sets the tone uh, for a lot of the stories that come afterwards. And a lot of the things that come up again and again in the history, you already start to see uh, being manifested in these really, really early stories. So, you know, uh, okay, Ada Lovelace for Dummies is, you know, she was the daughter of the poet Lord Byron. She was a intensely brilliant analytical mind of a very strong mathematician. Had she been born a man uh, in her day, she probably would have been, you know, one of the most well-known mathematicians of the Victorian age. But because she was a woman and she was sort of a member of the aristocracy, she was uh, held down by uh, her social obligations and her, you know, her obligations to her husband and to her various estates that she had to manage. Uh, But she did manage to make a huge impact in the history of computing because she, at a very young age, linked up with Charles Babbage, who was an engineer and, and scientist uh, who was working on these incredibly ambitious and somewhat anachronistic computing machines, uh, the difference engine and the analytical engine, which she understood uh, kind of intuitively and became fixated on and fascinated by and, and spent a great deal of her uh, somewhat finite energy creating mathematical proofs for these machines, which were never even fully built uh, for the most part, but creating mathematical proofs for these machines that would essentially, you know, they presaged computer programming by a good chunk of a good chunk of time, uh, you know, by a century, basically. She was, she was writing math, uh, computer programs for computers that didn't even exist yet a uh, hundred years before anybody thought seriously about making computing machines uh, in the modern age. So a really interesting character. And she was really one of the first people to sort of understand implicitly that, you know, a, a computing machine was not going to be just a calculator. It wasn't going to be something that just uh, crunched numbers or variables, that once you had something that was uh, able to process variables, that those variables could be anything. They could be music, um, they could be colors, they could be highly abstract, uh, that computers could start to uh, work in the symbolic space was something that, an insight that she had, you know, really, really early on. One of the things also about uh, Ada is that she's sort of the, she's the beginning of a, I don't say like a movement, but she's the beginning of a phenomena where, you know, women are playing a really big role. And I think in what you call in the book, um, mental work, uh, where many, many women are being brought together in, in labs and in scientific areas and uh, and even for NASA later on, uh, to do uh, lots of computational work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for close to 200 years, a computer wasn't a thing. It was it was a job. It was a practice. It was, you know, the person who does computations for a living. And because that was, uh, by definition, kind of this distributed, really process-intensive, kind of menial uh, mental labor, it was something that was done largely and exclusively by women as a kind of cottage industry. And, uh, you know, much of the development of the scientific age before the, you know, development of the computing machine was uh, powered by the computations of groups of women working in offices together and and crunching the numbers that couldn't be crunched by one person alone. So women really embodied, you know, they have this, women have an embodied relationship to the history of computing. I mean, they really were doing the work that computers do today, and they were doing it in this kind of networked and distributed way, which in a way anticipated, you know, the development of, of networked computing. So I think there's this very strong kind of symbolic embodied history between between women and, and machines. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you mentioned there, computers are literally named after the women who do this work. 
I mean, it's kind of it's kind yes. of a striking thing. I think that people don't really realize that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the movie Hidden Figures probably did a lot to popularize that conception. It's now something that people maybe are a little bit more familiar with than they were. But you know, the work that work isn't just in the 1950s and 60s. It goes all the way back to you know the Victorian age. So it's it's a it's a couple centuries of of, of mathematical labor. Um, you know, the other, another story I was really interested in was the story about hypertext. Uh, which I found mm, really fascinating. Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit about yeah. Wendy Hall and about that story? Yeah, I mean that. I'm glad you you picked that because that's really one of my favorite discoveries uh, that I made. I mean, personally, I, I didn't discover hypertext or anything, but I I discovered that that hypertext had existed for a decade before um, the World Wide Web came along and popularized it. It's so fascinating because if you think about, you know, the earliest efforts to put mathematics onto a machine. That, that turned into and was formalized by programming. But once we had machines that could run mathematical processes and we had networked them and we had memory, we started to have as a, as a society, as a culture, this issue of what do we do with all this information that's been digitized? How do we navigate it? How do we, you know, beyond this very sort of indexical, hierarchical way of organizing things that computers kind of intuitively or, you know, naturally do, how do we actually navigate all this information and make meaning out of it, make knowledge out of it? And that's really what that's what hypertext is all about. It's creating connections between material in a corpus uh, of information or data and and turning that data into actionable, useful, human-oriented knowledge. And that work is work that was practiced for a, a really long time and uh, both research and, you know, uh, corporate environments, research labs at corporations like Apple and Sun, uh, but also in academics, uh, by, by by and large by women, or at least, you know, as a field, it was much more welcoming to women than classical computer programming might have been because, you know, it was, it was something that was sort of seen as, I want to say, like more, more, more of a social science side of things, more humanist, more... Uh, welcoming to people who were coming from different backgrounds, who were coming from, you know, the study of work or the study of information science. And so it was a much more sort of open and convivial atmosphere for various different kinds of scholars, but also for women. So what type of work was that specifically? So literally the work of trying to figure out how these documents and texts and corpuses of data and encyclopedias that were all digitized, how they related to each other? Or was it the work of how, how to actually create technology that allows you to do the relating, I guess? I mean, there's a couple of different manifestations of that. I think most of the, the lion's share of the labor was being done in trying to design systems that could kind of encompass all of this information and make it easy to navigate. Uh, a lot of people working in hypertext were designing hypertext systems, uh, of which there are many, you know, these arcane systems that, that no longer exist that were being designed at like Xerox Park or uh, at Brown, uh, workstations for scholars to deal with the information in their library databases, for example, or um, more kind of constructive hypertext systems for scientists to work through their arguments uh by linking them together in these sort of page-oriented, note-card-oriented, writing-process-oriented systems, so it was a, quite an open field, and there were lots of, you know, if you if you were if you if one could time travel back to the early hypertext conferences in, in the mid 1980s, you would see like a lot of poets and writers alongside computer scientists and engineers because it was something that you know the idea of how you organize information is something that's appealing to a lot of different people, and there are lots of creative possibilities in that. So to go back to your earlier question about who Wendy yeah. Hall is, um, she was a hypertext hypermedia researcher in the UK. Uh, she's 
you know, one of the most sort of decorated computer science and scientists in the UK now. She's she's a dame. Um, she's, you know, the chair of the web sciences department at the University of Southampton. She's a really major figure in the development of the World Wide Web as well. But she spent a good chunk of her early career designing a hypertext system uh, called Microcosm that was essentially, you know, had history shaken out slightly differently. It may have become, you know, the earliest web browser or it may have gone in many different directions. But she formalized these conventions for how to think about and how to structure links that basically solved a lot of problems that we still have with the web today. Like her system, instead of making links contextual and embedded in the documents the way that they are in the web, I mean, when you go to a link on the web, it's, you know, it's a highlighted fragment of a page. It's either a piece of text or, you know, a dynamic object or a an image. And it's, but it's, it's, it's married to that source. Whereas in her system, all the links existed on this kind of meta layer that uh, was, a, was a, a link database called a link base that could exist on top of the documents and never interfere with the documents so that you would never have something like a 404 error. I mean, now, today, if, uh, you know, something that you're linking to is hidden behind a paywall or taken down or, you know, removed for the, from the web for any reason, you know, everything that linked to it uh, is broken. It becomes, every link becomes broken. And a lot of these early hypertext researchers understood implicitly that the the piece of information that is contained in the connection between two ideas is just as important as a unit of information as the individual ideas themselves. That like that that connection is is a kind of meta information. It's 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 a big part of what meaning making is. And so when the web came along and uh, was presented at some of these early hypertext conferences, all the hypertext people, all the women working in hypertext were like, oh, that's never going to take off because the links only go in one direction and they're contextual. And, you know, you need the, you need to, you need the internet access to, to use this? No way. This is never going to work. Of course, history has, you know, proven otherwise. But, you know, we could be living in a world had circumstances uh, been even slightly different where we would never have to worry about a 404 error. And, you know, ideas would be connected to each other in so many different directions in so many different ways. Uh, you know, hypertext, the dream of hypertext never really come, came to fruition. But I think there is a parallel universe somewhere where we're all using microcosm or one of these other systems instead of the web. And maybe maybe we don't have some of the problems that we have today. I mean, it's impossible to know, but I like to fantasize about, you know, where our culture would be 20 years down the line from a different system than the web. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I mean, what struck me about the story um, is also a comment that you got from Kathy Marshall where she says, and I'll just paraphrase, but uh, it was something to the extent of like, all of a sudden you were an outsider when you'd been an insider the whole time. That was sort of how they felt when you know, they'd been working as like the insider of, of insiders on hypertext. And then the web came. And as you mentioned, at first they looked at it and they're like, this isn't going to work. And then a year and a half later, it was like everywhere. Um, it was it, so, it went so quickly is the, the remarkable thing. I it's, mean, it's within such a, a year. Yeah. And it's I just it really struck me because, A, it's such a common refrain when you talk to anyone that was an early user of anything that became popular, right? Like if you talk to, you know, people who lived in, you know, San Francisco in 1986 and talk about Craigslist, you know, it's like, it's a very, very common thing in a while, in a way. Um, But it's very, it's just very um, telling, I think here. And I just, as I read that, I just felt like this was a theme throughout the book, right? And something you talked about, I think earlier here, which is um, that things change very, very quickly. And sometimes the the lesson that history writes down is of the web and not, not necessarily the lesson that you just told us here about Wendy Hall and hypertext. Yeah, I mean, that's history has a tendency to do that. Hey, you know, we, we tend to remember the last thing, the last big famous thing that came along and not the, you know, ongoing context of maybe a decade of stuff that happens before that makes that thing possible. I mean, you know, the the web... Is is a brilliant thing. I mean, it was it it took over the world for a reason, um, but I think the the force by which it took over the world kind of, you know, erased a lot of labor that came before. But you know, they it's important to remember that these things always emerge from a context. They don't just come, you know, fully formed from heaven. Um, there's there's a sort of climate of thought that that these things emerge from, and it's always really interesting to go back and and try to identify some of the earlier progenitors, because even though they didn't become the thing, uh, they have a real material impact on what the thing uh, thinks it's capable of doing, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, Well, tell me a little bit about doing research for the book, because that's also was really interesting to me in that you touched on here earlier, which is that there's so many people you got to just talk to. I mean, there's just such mm-hmm. a deluge of, and I mean that in a positive way, of really great stories from great women. You talked to Brenda Laurel, you talked to Jamie Levy, who you mentioned earlier, and so many more. Um, and then it seems like also a lot of this is like, uh, you know, I don't know where you got all these all the stories about Ada Lovelace, but some of them are, it's not just sort of the technical work she did, but it's also the stories of her family and the conflict in her family and, and you know, all those responsibilities that she had. You know, it gets very personal in a way, too. Um, what was that process like doing the research? You know, you touch on something that I think is really important, which is I really don't believe that the alternative to great man history is great woman history. And I'm really resistant to this trend that I sometimes see um, in, you know, in, in tech and in STEM, which I think is something that emerges out of just like a desperate need for representation, where these kind of cookie cutter figures from tech history are trotted out, you know, the Ada Lovelaces and the Grace Hoppers as kind of like these sticker book characters, you know, these like, look at this, you know, cool tech pioneer, you too can do this, you know, uh, the kind of Rosie the Riveter-ing of, of important characters. Because for me as a woman and as a person who's trying to learn lessons from some of my progenitors, I, I want to understand the full context in which these people exist. And I want to understand, you know, what kind of 
um, challenges they're facing and what flaws they have. I want to see them in their full human complexity. And if they're, you know, there are there can be female antiheroes. You know, men get to have antiheroes. I want to, I want to be able to have, you know, a fully rounded kind of uh, person to learn from because. You know, knowing that Ada, Ada Lovelace is a brilliant genius computer scientist, you know, amazing woman that I can wear on a T-shirt is, isn't helpful to me, doesn't teach me anything. But knowing that she was someone that that, you know, had a lot of problems and, you know, was maybe a gambling addict and, and had, you know, had a lot of, uh, you know, a really dubious relationship with her own children, like maybe didn't want to be a mother, um, felt limited by her time, felt frustrated by people's inability to, to understand her or listen to her, um, you know, that she really had to fight tooth and nail and, and throw so much of herself into what she was doing just to make a fraction of the impact that she wanted to make. Uh, that to me is so much more interesting and so much more instructive. Like I can learn so much more from that mm. than just from this sort of loose characterization. So I tried to really give each of my characters in the book a context and, uh, you know, real human motivations and, and, and a real story, a real story, you know, not just a story of accomplishment and success, but something more nuanced. And, you know, fortunately, there's a lot of you know, a lot of resources for the early historical characters. I mean, Ada Lovelace wrote a lot of letters and her her tone and who she is comes out so much in those letters. Um, and there's tons of oral histories for those, the early programmers in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, and then everyone who's still alive, I got to just kind of, you know, meet and, and suss out and, and try to get, try to understand where they were coming from. So the process of researching this was really, you know, I think, there are so many more stories I could have told in this book, and I, I know which what they are, and there's many more that I don't even know, because there's so much there. And you know, part of the thing that's so maddening about uh, about about sort of tech history in general is that you know we've we've heard the same fifteen stories about you know Steve Jobs and Bill Gates so many times, but yet there's this unbelievable wealth of material if you just start looking at women. I mean, just right beneath the surface. I mean, all you got to do is look at the footnotes of a couple of other books and then, you know, look at those women and then realize that there's just this unbelievable larger context in which they existed. So, you know, for one, there's many more stories to tell and I and I look forward to reading them, <laughs> maybe not writing them myself, but definitely reading them, uh, hopefully seeing them in films and TV and seeing them everywhere because they're very needed. Uh, but, you know, the, the original draft of this book was basically an encyclopedia because there were just so many uh, names I wanted to include and I really yeah. felt this burden of responsibility like oh my god I've, i'm writing this You're book i've got to make sure that i put ever tell these every stories. single yeah. name yeah. yeah but i reached a point with it where I, you know i had to be okay with the fact that i was trying to tell a narrative you know a compelling narrative a readable narrative because you know you want people to actually engage emotionally with this stuff because that's how you get people invested so i tried to pick people for the book that were you know, representative in some way of their moment or who happened to have landed at an interesting place in time where there's enough color and context there to really tell a larger story or to touch on some of the larger thematic things that are going on. But, you know, I hope that every single one of the stories in the book is a signpost that is pointing <laughs> at, at the huge amount of other women whose stories are, have yet to be told. Did you find the, did you find the anti-hero? I don't, maybe this is generational. Like for me, it would be like the, the you know female Bill Gates. Not that that would be exactly how they would be, but like that was the antihero of my computing world. That my you know was like Bill Gates. What's, is there a? We, did you find an antihero? I don't know that there's a female Bill Gates. Not you know. I don't um, mean that they would have to be like Bill Gates, but just that they would occupy a, the sort of 
you know. I mean, there's a story at the end of the book. Person that he occupied in the 90s, I guess. <laughs> I mean, the Bill Gates Steve Jobs dichotomy is, you know, one of these was one of these classic narrative things. I mean, yeah. they're they complement each other and they have this kind of rivalry that is so fascinating because they sort of touch on two sides of what computing culture is about. Um, and I don't know that there is the same analogy uh, with the women in the history, if only because I don't think very many women had the opportunity to become, you know, powerful mm. founders in that same capacity. Yeah. But perhaps, you know, when we open up the floodgates a little bit more, there will be many and many female Bill Gateses to um, antagonize some future <laughs> female Steve Jobs we have yet to meet. Um, I noticed also, just since you just touched on this, that you're, I think it's, I think I'm going to call it the promo shoot for the book, but maybe it was some other type of shoot. But I noticed that you did a shoot, um, a photo shoot that's essentially like a, a parody of like these early Steve Jobs Macintosh <laughs> photos where people know these, right? He's, he's like in his mid twenties and he's in this like pristine apartment and he's like so pure. He has no furniture except he has one Tiffany lamp on the floor and there he sits with like the lights dim and like his Macintosh on his lap. I think everybody's seen this photo and you, you basically parried the parody, this, um, this shoot. Homage. Homage. Okay. okay. More than, yes. My author photo is me in a mock turtleneck and jeans and a Mac classic. It's very funny. On an empty floor. It's, it's staged to look almost identical to that photo. I mean, I think it's a little bit of a wink. I mean, I just thought it was too funny not to do, um, you know, I actually do kind of dress like Steve Jobs in real life. I am a collector of vintage computers. That's my Mac classic. So, you know, it was it was there ready to be done. But I also think, you know, this book is about kind of relensing this history and providing, uh, you know, a corrective and alternative. Um, and so I think that image of just a youngish woman uh, taking the place or, um, you know, presenting a counterpoint to an iconic image it was just sort of a, a nod in the direction of, of what I want to do. And I hope that, you know, people who see it can kind of get can kind of get what I'm what I'm trying to do with the book just from seeing that image. Yeah, I thought it was really powerful, actually, because it's it's a fun it's a very funny photo. And I, and I mean that in a complimentary way. It's meant to be funny. Um, yes. And like the photo is, I mean, as cool as it looks, it's also ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing is really, really ridiculous. <laughs> and it's it's good that somebody's lampooning, you know as an homage yeah I mean I that image I mean just like the idea of being a 90s a 90s computer millionaire in an empty mansion with just a Tiffany yeah, lamp I mean is something that is it's amazing I mean it's it's one of my major sort of aesthetic and cultural reference points and, and, I, and I never want to feel like you know because I'm I'm focusing on women in this tech history that I that I'm antagonizing the canon because I love the canon and obviously this is I'm in conversation with the canon, hopefully supplementing the canon, and um, I hope that I can sort of show that I am knowing about uh, about the body of work in which I'm a relationship to. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing doing this, and uh, it was a great book. Congratulations. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to Claire Evans for joining me on the podcast. You can find Broadband and Claire's author photo at ClaireLEvans.com. I highly recommend you get the book. It's really great. Our producer is Sebastian Aday. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a business executive who's gone way off her talking points. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.